So, Bob, today I want to talk about the difference between complex post-traumatic stress disorder and borderline personality disorder. There's a lot of debate in the literature and in among clinicians about whether or not they're even different things or, or if they are, in fact, different. Uh, complex PTSD and borderline personality disorder. The, the reason why uh, I want to talk with you about it, Bob, is for two reasons. One is that you specialize in the treatment of people with borderline, and I'm guessing you've come across a lot of people who also have complex PTSD. Is that true? I think we're getting right into the debate. Are they one and the same? Well, you've you've you, uh, the issue is is you've treated a lot of people with yes. borderline. Yes, and the other reason is is because. Patron Natasha wrote in and she said, what is the difference between borderline personality disorder and complex PTSD? I have several clients who have experienced attachment-related trauma and also experienced traumatic events later in life. They tend to have issues with trust. They are fearful of being betrayed, and they tend to interpret others as being critical or rejecting. They have high levels of internalized self-directed anger. They are extremely self-critical. They have black and white thinking styles about themselves and other people. I am currently working with borderline personality disorder and complex PTSD clients in a similar way, but I'm trying to work out whether it would be helpful to distinguish these diagnoses since they seem to be pretty similar. So that's what I want to talk about today with you, Bob, because you're an expert in this field and the listeners will benefit from your expertise. Welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a a professor. Who are you, Bob? I'm Bob Gettle. I'm a therapist, a friend of yours from graduate school way back when, and I practice here in Seattle. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast. So if you're listening to this and you're not a patron of the podcast, this episode will end before the content begins. So in this episode, we're going to go down a a fairly uh, deep dive on complex PTSD and borderline uh, not we'll we'll call it a moderate to shallow dive. It's not going to be too long, but but we're going to go into it. If you want to hear this full episode, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. Become a patron of the podcast, and you'll get ac- access to hundreds of patron exclusive episodes in which we do deep dives into various topics. And remember that a portion of your monthly pledge goes towards various charities that we support. All right, welcome to the Patron Zone people. Thank you for becoming a patron. We love you very much. So, Bob, let's talk about this. Uh, what is your opinion or your experience with complex PTSD, borderline? Is there a difference? Are they the same? What's your experience? I guess at some point I'd like us to define terms. Sure. What is? What are we calling complex PTSD? Yeah. Every person I've ever met, worked with, who had... Uh, borderline personality disorder has significant trauma from childhood. A little point on that. I, you know, when they do research on borderline, they find that something like 80% of people with borderline personality disorder have ha- experienced child abuse or mistreatment or some kind of abuse or neglect as a child. And when I hear that, I think, well, those other 20% just aren't talking about it, or they don't know how to identify it or something. I, I find it hard to believe, because in my experience, it's the same. I've never come across someone that has borderline that wasn't significantly mistreated or abandoned. I mean, 
the notion is ridiculous to me. It'd be like someone just emerging with PTSD having never been traumatized before. What do you think about that? might be useful to define terms there. What are we calling trauma? So whoever's doing this kind of surveying, what is it that they're calling trauma and what they're not? I know that Marshall Linehan says that uh, borderline personality disorder is caused by um, really a poor match between parenting style and child temperament. So some of those situations might not be traumatic or mistreatment. They might just be like another child with a different kind of temperament would do well with those parents. Yeah. Maybe, you know, say the parents are really on the cold edge of the range of parenting styles. Yeah. And you have a kid who is fairly independent and just doesn't seem to need a lot of attention. Right. You know, they'll they'll be fine or won't develop borderline anyway. Right. But another person who has a temperament that yeah. is much more socially interactive, you know, nothing pathological, no. but just really, you know, extroverted or relationally oriented or yeah. something. Yeah, right. And you match them up with cold parents. And then systemically over time, this interaction becomes toxic because there's conflict and bad feelings and resentments that, you know, parents build up resentments yep. against kids yeah. and vice versa. And then over, and then by the time the kid is even four, the kid is in a wholly different scenario than the kid who, you know, was fairly independent. And anyone who's been around kids knows that kids have temperaments. They come out of the womb with part of their personality already worked out, right? Oh, absolutely. So, okay. So that that's a good point. So some people won't have, but I find that when I read that in the literature, they say 80% of people experience yeah. mistreatment. I always think like, well, by implication, you're saying that a good portion of people are genetically bipolar or borderline, which I find to just not make any sense. It doesn't It'd be make like, like you're genetically PTSD. Yeah, know? right. It just doesn't yeah. make any sense to me. No. They're probably going to be sensitive kids. Yeah. Um, um, you see that movie, Ordinary People? Long time ago. Okay. So there's a kid. It's who, a classic movie you show in counseling courses. No shit. Oh, yeah. Well, especially in family therapy and grief, right? Because yeah. someone dies. Timothy Hutton, right? Uh, tries to kill himself after his brother dies, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Fabulous movie. Now, there's a kid who you would say was not growing up in an abusive home, but is a really poor fit for his mother. Just a really poor fit. They're just oil and water. And that kid's going to have problems as an adult. Yeah. Now, is he going to have borderline personality disorder the way someone who had had severe childhood trauma? Maybe not. But as a colleague of mine who actually works in Linehan's clinic said to me, there's 95 permutations of those nine symptoms. I like that. 99 permutations of those nine symptoms, right? Yeah. And as you and I, I know, conceptualize borderline, it's a personality spectrum yeah. that there are some people or, or a personality scatter plot, shall we say. That's a good way to put it. With, some, with a corner of the scatter plot uh, qualifying for the diagnosis in the DSM, but there's all these other permutations that you wouldn't say qualify for the diagnosis. Right but uh, are clinically just as relevant as the diagnosis is. Yeah. You know, that someone can be extremely, uh, you know, they, they, could be, they could be very sensitive to rejection. Right. And have extreme 
emotional reactions and uh, you know their sense of self, their self identity, their prediction of the future, their outlook on life be- completely falls through the floor when someone rejects them, even in a small way. Particularly in a large way, that would make it worse. <laughs> but um, and I've seen this, but I would you know. I had a client who was fired from his job, and he took this job very seriously. Yeah. And he became extremely reactive to that, as anyone would. But his reaction was severe. But he's not, he doesn't have borderline personality disorder, but he likely grew up in an environment in which abandonment and rejection, humiliation, those kinds of experiences were a theme that made him sensitive as an adult to those kinds of rejections. Particularly around performance, perhaps. Right. Right. Particularly around prestige or, I, you know, he, he really identified right. himself with his job. It was, yeah. a, it was a high-level, prestigious job with yeah. a – it had all the markers of a job that you'd be proud of because it wasn't – it was not only making a lot of money and – High powered, but it was also within environmentalism and and social justice. You know, it was a, it was like the confluence of everything that he wanted out of a job, and and it was a big deal to him. And and so uh, temporarily after being fired, he had a he he was easily mistaken for someone who has borderline personality disorder yeah. or even bipolar, sure. which was another ridiculous thing that people were yeah. uh, looking at him about. But you anyway. climb the highest mountain, you have the Longest fall. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, this isn't to say that being fired is no big deal. Whenever you're fired, it's going to be a big deal. But what I'm saying is the extent to his reaction was an indication of his past traumas. Anyway, so the the definition of borderline personality disorder is, is, comple- is complex uh, and complicated. And I just want to say for you people out there who, who don't, who aren't experts, even some of you clinicians, you'll never understand what borderline personality disorder is until you actually interact with a number of people who have it and you treat them over time. You can read the DSM, you can listen to this podcast, you can look at all the, you know, especially you lay people out there, you can watch all the YouTube fucking videos you want. And I'm here to tell you, you will not understand what borderline personality disorder is. And I say this every time because I'm getting so effing tired of people on the internet diagnosing random people uh, with border with with any kind of personality yeah, disorder. Right. Um, as I say, uh, clinicians, mo- I would say most clinicians don't even understand borderline in mm-hmm. my experience, uh, or at least a sizable percentage. And um, so, how are the lay public supposed to understand this thing? Especially if the clinicians and there's a large chunk have the prejudiced. Right. Against that particular. Well, and I find that just to be a symptom of lack of understanding. Yeah. You know, they, they, they took a graduate course on psychopathology and they went to their, and that was, and that they had like one week to learn about uh, personality disorders, literally. Yeah. You know, the, you know, the semester is 13 weeks and there's, I don't know, 15 chapters in the DSM or something, yeah. or 20 chapters. And personality disorders are probably like one week. And borderline was one of nine that yeah. they studied, and they probably watched a vignette and then they moved on, and and then they go to their internship 
and they're not being supervised by anyone who understands borderline. Yeah. They encounter a lot of borderline people, people with least borderline traits, but they don't know what they're looking at, and they label them as like problematic people or overreactive or people who don't take responsibility or even you know mood disordered or something. Mm. And then they go off into the world, and that's it. That's the end of their education. So their full range of their exposure was that one week in psychopathology. And that's it. So, you know, 10, 20 years experience later, what's who, you know, how can we blame someone for having limited understanding of borderline? You know what I mean? So, um, now I had the fortune of during my internship, I think, or, or soon after, uh, had a client that I worked with for many years, uh, that had borderline. A kind of a mild case, but definitely diagnosable. And it, I, I'll just never forget that. It was, I was so involved with her relationally oriented therapy, interpersonal therapy, psychodynamic therapy. And everything I learned about borderline, I basically learned from her. Sure. Everything beyond that was just sort of further understanding of what right. that was. Yeah. And a lot of it, you know, I'd say half of the data that informs my understanding of borderline is the way she made me feel mm-hmm. not what I observed, not what I thought clinically, but the way I felt in my body as I interacted with her. And as we went on that journey together. Yeah. Um, and, and I still use that as a diagnostic assessment tool as I assess people in my personal life <laughs> um, in terms of personality disorders, you know, yeah. like how, how am I feeling right now? Now that's not always, you know, the best gauge, but well, nothing's always the best gauge, right? It's a good source of information. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. If in a very short amount of time, I'm feeling terrified just from talking to someone then, but there's no explicit threat, then that, that to me is always a, a humongous, you know, one of those mammoth red flags. There's a huge American flag in West Seattle when you get off Delridge. Oh, I, know. The, I think it's at the DSHS Center. It is just the biggest American flag I've ever seen up close. That's how big that red flag is to me when I am terrified after five minutes of talking to somebody. Um, is that similar for you? That hasn't happened to me in probably five days. <laughs> that With kind a of, client? Or, that kind of ter- or, yes. The terrors, here's the thing about you. You can pay attention to that terror and not hate the client. Right. I think a lot of us, and by us, I mean a lot of uh, therapy types, therapist types, can have that feeling and be very turned off by the client and blame the client. And man, if I, there's one bug I got up my butt, it's that, that kind of uh, attitude. Right. That people, that clinicians will essentially re-traumatize people by rejecting them again. Yeah. I mean, it's an inducement, and it's a tragic result of being mistreated as a child in this way. Right. In that you tend to induce fear in other people. Yeah. And that most people run from fear, naturally. Naturally. And clinicians that don't understand what the fuck they're doing also run from fear. (laughs) Um (laughs) <laughs> and, and it's There's like a few of those. you understand that the the thing I always uh, and I I've said this before. 
on the podcast, and my supervisees hate it when I say this, or they don't hate it. I always think they hate it, but I would hate it if I was them. Is I say people come to therapy because they have problems, and one of the problems might be that they were mistreated, which results in them being highly anxious and but needy naturally as human beings for human attachment. And when they interact with anyone, including you, that anxiety is going to manifest and they're going to start to have ideas based on their experience that you were already rejecting them and that will hurt their feelings and then they'll get angry at you. But it'll be subtle because it's not clear what's exactly happening and that anger will result in them and you'll feel that anger. You'll, you'll feel that edge to them, which will make you afraid. And that's the problem that you as a therapist have been tasked with healing. Bravo. And you uh, understand that, you know, not everyone comes into therapy going like, I'm a fully functioning, mature human being. And I just have this tiny little issue that I'd like to talk with you. And after every session, I'm going to congratulate you about how great of a therapist you are because, you know, I'm so mature and maternal and I'm going to take care of you in this part. No, you know, everyone comes to therapy, has a problem, and some of, many of them have to do with trust and with relational issues yeah. that are going to make you feel things. And that's okay. Yeah, man. Feeling afraid, feeling angry feeling confused, feeling trapped, feeling panicked, <laughs> feeling worthless, feeling whatever it is you feel. It's okay. Feelings are okay. Yeah. Um, okay. So you said you wanted to define complex PTSD and borderline. And uh, the, the issue here is that complex PTSD is not a diagnosis in the DSM. Right. So I believe it's an ICD-11 uh, diagnosis, though. No kidding. Yeah, let's see. Uh, see, there's a complex view, consistent, for example. Uh, ICD-11, anyway, uh, I'd have to look that up. But in, in our world, that we use the DSM, and we uh, there's, there's no official diagnosis for complex PTSD. The thing I will say is the new definition of PTSD in the DSM-5 does include some of the constructs or some of the elements of the construct of complex PTSD. Yeah. So the, the general uh, definition of complex PTSD is uh, a P- trauma that results in PTSD, but the trauma had been experienced over time, often with someone who is responsible for taking care of you, someone in your family. So your father sexually abuses you, or your fa- or your mother physically abuses you for five, ten years, or your entire life, maybe, or something, that will result for some people in PTSD, but it has a complex label to it because it involves relationship issues. You know, if you are traumatized in a car accident, there's no complexity to that unless your father ran you off the road or something, which, you know, (laughs) but if you just get in a car accident, you have what we call simple PTSD, where you are, you've been traumatized, you know, if you develop PTSD, we would call that uh, simple PTSD in that you were traumatized by this accident. And so every time you see a car or you're 
required to get in a car, you have this PTSD reaction. You want to avoid getting in the car. You have kind of panic attack. You feel kind of disjointed from the world. You have nightmares of getting, you know, you have the full PTSD reaction, you know, two years later after getting in this car accident. But it's a, but so there's this discrete trauma or you had five car accidents or you were in a war in Afghanistan and you saw 10 people get killed over the span of a couple years. That we would call simple PTSD. Again, complex PTSD in, involves often the quintessential example is your parent either physically or sexually abused you throughout your childhood. So the trauma, so you have PTSD. Uh, you may or may not have PTSD from childhood abuse, but if you do develop PTSD, you likely have the complex uh, in addition to that because it's all wrapped up in relationships, which makes it more complex. Because if you're traumatized by a car accident, the only thing that – the main thing that, that worries you is, is cars. <laughs> if you're home and you're with your, your spouse or your kids or your parents – that isn't threatened by that. You're just like, well, you're not a part of the car. So it's cars that I'm worrying about, but my loved ones, I still love. Well, if your loved ones were the ones who traumatized you, then your loved ones later in life will be wrapped up in the triggering of PTSD. So you mean different loved ones, for instance, a spouse, right? New loved ones. Yeah. Yeah. So people who weren't around during the original traumatization, so that's why we call it complex because the in clinically speaking when someone comes in with that kind of PTSD complex PTSD it's a much steeper hill to climb with for for both client and therapist because the just the simple act of engaging in therapy might trigger the person t- uh in terms of their PTSD uh so it makes it very complex the relationship has the cues for symptoms embedded in it just naturally. Right. So that's why we call it complex PTSD. Uh, Am I saying this right? I think what you're saying sounds spot on. Okay. Now, borderline is something quite different, but over the years we've been seeing, so originally borderline was sort of seen as like, the way it was, the impression I got in the beginning was it was something you're born with that there's just something wrong with you. You know what I mean? I don't remember it being, I remember people saying like, well, you know, a lot of them have been abused, but not, but not all of them. And really abuse is associated with all sorts of things, like even schizophrenia. So the way it was, the way I left graduate school, I thought of borderline as essentially like, like schizophrenia. People are kind of crazy. They're they're super paranoid. They make stuff up. They're black and white. You know, there's something wrong with their head that's akin to schizophrenia or bipolar or something. Well, you know, the term itself has its roots. Right. You're borderline psychotic. Right. Right. Which is actually a good description because you're not. It's they're not in the psychosis uh, spectrum. <laughs> they're just. But it, you could see how they could appear to to be almost delusional but yeah. but it's a different kind of if you've been with somebody who has delusions true delusions you can distinguish right but if you haven't they're going to look the same right because it's it's going to seem so counter to what you as a clinician will know as reality for instance with you know borderline clients they 
will sometimes say to you, the therapist, they'll say, well, you know, the other day you said that I was a bad client, you know, and you as a therapist are like, well, I, one, I don't remember that Two, I've never, I've literally never said that phrase to, I've never even thought that phrase. I, I've, I, as a therapist, I've had this happen to me. I'm like, you know, a, a client will be accusing me of having said something and I'll, and I'll be like, not only don't I, re, you know, I can't remember everything I say is, you know, so this might be what I say. It's like, well, I can't remember everything I say. So it's, I guess it's possible I said that, but I'm here to tell you, I've, I've never thought that about you. And I've never thought that phrase in my head about anyone. So if I did say that, my brain, I must've had a mild stroke because <laughs> that doesn't, you know, that doesn't even make sense to me, right. you know? And they're like, well, you said it. And in my head, I'm like, no, I did not. Sure. But, but, but so the, a, a non, you know, inexperienced clinician will be like, oh, this person's delusional. They're hearing voices or, you know, making shit up or they're making, sh- but they seem very adamant. They seem like they really believe They it. believe what they're saying. Right. The issue is, is that they're so hurt that that's how it feels. And we don't base our memories on fact. We base memories on how they feel, right? It, the classic example is I'm talking to a couple, and they're talking about a fight they had last night. And one has one story, and the other has another story. And they are, they are like from different planets. Yeah. Might we call them Venus and Mars? No, just joking. <laughs> we're not, we're not going to say that because that's ridiculous. But <laughs> that book is dumb. But um, the, uh, the point is, is that their story feels right to them. If you hook them up to a polygraph, both of them would pass right. because it feels right to them. They believe what they're saying. Yeah. It's, they're not just making it up. And, and I've done this too. When, sure. I, when I get in fights with people, especially within it, there's like different phases of, of my brain. Sure. In the, in, the, in the heat of the action, God knows what the fuck my brain is doing, but it's all kind of fucked up. But soon after, even for like maybe a week, I'll have a story, a narrative in my head yeah. that I know is correct. I've molded over. I've been oh, like, I yeah. said this, they said mm-hmm. that, I said that. I'm definitely in the right here. It's yeah. always I'm in the right. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and then like, the, I'll, I'll, sometimes I'll even feel it happening in my brain. There'll be this switch, this kind of like, I feel kind of like, it's like a slope to a new plateau, a lower plateau. Right. And I'm like, oh my God. I've, you know, this past week I've, I've had this narrative, but I, I'm seeing it from this whole other light. You know, I, the facts don't change, but the emphasis on particularly the other person's point of view and where right. they were coming from. Absolutely. And so in this way, we're all, you know, on that borderline spectrum, you know, we all have moments and if, if you're significantly traumatized, that's going to be exemplified or exaggerated right because your feeling state is so negative and so intense that it will so influence your memories and your narrative of a story um anyway so let's get into um the research so i looked up a a study by Cloitra Garvert Weiss Carlson Bryant published in the European Journal of Psychotraumatology. Wow. 
Psychotraumatology. I hate it when they um, abbreviate. Oh, European Journal of Psychotraumatology. I hate it when they abbreviate uh, journal titles, especially on the internet when there's so much room to print it out. Like why? It's it's U E U R. I assume that means Europe, right? J. I assume that means journal. journal. And then psychotraumatol. Psychotram. I assume that's tra- but then right above it says European Journal. So. 2014. Um, it's actually available online free. I, I didn't need to use my privilege as a professor to get this. Excellent study that looked at uh, a number of clients who had been given a number of measures regarding symptoms. And those measures were uh, the clinician-administered PTSD scale, the brief symptom inventory, the structured clinical interview, interview two for borderline personality disorder module, <laughs> and the social adjustment scale self-report. And they analyzed the results, and basically what they came up with, they were trying to figure out if complex PTSD is any different from borderline. And what they found was it is. So let's go through the different symptoms that are common to PTSD to complex PTSD, and to borderline. To guide this, uh, in my opinion, basically from this, because I, I used to consider complex PTSD to be the same as borderline. I, used to, I would use those terms interchangeably mm-hmm. because I see bo- uh, borderline people having been traumatized by their early experiences related to uh, being abandoned, being rejected. You know, it's essentially the, the, the foundational understanding of complex PTSD to me is the same as, as borderline personality disorder. And since complex PTSD is not an official diagnosis, there's no way to say that they're not the same. Because sure. if you just in your head say, well, it is the same, then right. it is the same. Then it is. But according to this study, on their definition, I think they're using the ICD definition of complex PTSD, I'm convinced that essentially you have PTSD on one end, complex PTSD in the middle, and borderline on the other end. This makes sense. And now it's not a spectrum because you, you know, PTSD can be just as intense as borderline. Oh, absolutely. You know, if, if not more in some cases. You know, you can have, say, war stress from mm-hmm. Afghanistan that is so pervasive and all-encompassing and, and uh, affecting to your life uh, that would be greater than the average person with borderline personality disorder. So it's not a severity spectrum. No. But it is a symptom spectrum in terms of, like, the, the breadth of the symptoms. People with borderline personality disorder endorse so, – so I'll just get into this <laughs> – so there's a list of like 15 different symptoms that are common to PTSD, complex PTSD, and borderline. Borderline personality disorder has all of them, has every single symptom, including the PTSD symptoms. Right. Now, not severity. You know, we're not talking about severity. Yeah. We're just talking about endorsing different symptoms. So PTSD has the shortest list of symptoms, 
And then complex PTSD has all the PTSD symptoms plus an additional category. And then borderline personality disorder has all the PTSD symptoms plus all the complex PTSD symptoms plus a different set of symptoms. Is this making sense? Absolutely. Okay. So PTSD has the what we call re-experiencing symptoms, flashbacks, nightmares, these kinds of things, like intrusive memories coming back in your head. You're at the grocery store, a smell, you know, you know, reminds you of something, a perfume or, and you're, you know, you're right back in there. Movies are kind of good at depicting this. They often make it seem like it's a hallucination. Right. But some movies are better at, in terms of like, of, of depicting the panic that people feel upon being reminded of something, you know, that, that mental state gets triggered and. It's very distressing. It's no joke. Ordinary people's got some nice depictions of just that. Okay. Without making it seem hallucinatory. Okay. Right. Because it's not hallucinatory. No. It's not like people are back in Nam, you know, back in the jungle. Right. But they're, they, it feels like they are. Right. If you ask them, they would say, well, I know I'm in the grocery store. Of course. But I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm back there. I feel threatened. You know, I feel in danger. I feel like... If I don't run, right. something will happen. So that's the re-experiencing kinds of symptoms. PTSD, complex PTSD, and borderline all have those symptoms. So with people, so with PTSD, complex PTSD, it's fairly easy to understand. With borderline, it's more like someone looked at me funny, or my therapist terminated with me, or someone broke up with me. And I feel like I'm right back where my dad, you know, blah, blah, blah. Now, uh, uh, so, so that's re-experiencing. All of them have that. What's another PTSD category, do you know? Um, guilt, can't sleep. Right. So the can't sleep is in a different category, uh, but... Um, what's another? So there's different categories of. I'm, this isn't a test, but do you, do you uh, remember the different PTSD uh, categories? No, I don't remember them. So off you had the re-experiencing, right? And then, do you know the other ones? Well, one of them has to do with a, a foreshortened sense of either life or quality of life. Okay. Uh, well, you said guilt. Yeah. Right. Negative self-concept. Um. So, well, I'll just go through. <laughs> So avoidance. Right. So, you know, trying to avoid the triggers. Right. So you have, uh, you're trying to avoid thinking about it. You try to avoid places or activities or things that remind you. So if it's a car accident, you have, you, you don't want to get back into a car. Right. Um, if it was uh, being sexually abused, you avoid having sex. Or you avoid movies that depict rape or something like that. Right. So the avoidance is is common to PTSD, complex PTSD, and borderline. Now, borderline people have less, it's less often that they have these because if you think about it as a borderline person, how do you avoid humans? You know, it's hard. You need humans. And so that's harder. So it's it's easier to avoid cars than it is to avoid people. And so people, go ahead. Well, would you say that the mm, the way... A person with borderline personality disorder avoids is going to look different from the way somebody could avoid a car. It's right. a very concrete thing. It's a good way of putting it, right. So they might avoid 
becoming in a situation where they could be hurt, right. even though they're frequently trying to have relationships with other people. Right. So it's more nuanced, right, in terms of the avoidance. But uh, in terms of symptom, uh, you know, endorsement, PTSD, complex PTSD has more, but borderline has it as well. The next one is a sense of threat. So hypervigilance, startle response, uh, you know, panic, you know, just, just feeling threatened, feeling scared. Uh, PTSD has this complex PTSD has this and borderline people have it. borderline people a little less, but they have it. The next one, affect regulation problems. So feeling angry, feeling hurt. Uh, now, now here's where we start to get a little differentiation. PTSD, some, but not a lot. Complex PTSD and borderline, a lot of that. A lot of anger, a lot of hurt feelings. Some PTSD people have that, but, but this is where we start to see the, 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 distinct, the distinguishing you know, symptoms between PTSD. So, so, so far, re-experiencing avoidance, sense of threat, all you know, common to PTSD, complex PTSD, borderline. But, you know, the fact that you were traumatized at war or in a car accident appears not to be, uh, it appears not to be a frequent symptom to have a, a frequent sense of anger and hurt feelings. Makes sense when you think about it. Totally. Complex PTSD borderline has that in spades because yeah. they were frequently hurt by someone close to them which makes them angry. And so they're, you know, frequently angry. The next symptom uh, category is negative self-concept. So a negative self-concept. So feeling worthless, feeling guilt. You, you mentioned this. Again, PTSD, some, but not a lot. But in spades with complex PTSD and borderline personality disorder. In fact, I think this is the most uh, common endorsed symptom for those for those diagnoses 94% of people with complex PTSD report feeling feelings of worthlessness 88% of people with borderline endorse feelings of worthlessness so it's very negative self so if you're out there trying to distinguish between PTSD and complex PTSD and borderline ask them how they feel about themselves and that you know is a pretty good uh, indicator of differentiation between those two, which again makes sense. Makes sense. They're made to feel worthless by a human being. Getting in a car accident, you know, it's a accident, even if it was your fault, right? But if you are repeatedly told by your parents that you're worthless, or you're made to feel worthless by your family, then it makes sense that you would have this internalized feeling of worthlessness. Another symptom category is interpersonal problems. Again, a distinguishing factor between PTSD. Not feeling close to other people is not a common symptom to PTSD, but it is a symptom of complex PTSD and borderline. But here's an interesting finding, is that feeling disconnected from peop like people in general is common to all three. So yeah, that's interesting. I bet those are different, though. Uh, the feelings of disconnection from people, if I just have simple PTSD, are probably different 
I would think they're probably different than um, the quality of it with complex PTSD or borderline personality disorder. Yeah, right. Because when you're feeling disconnected with borderline, you're probably it's probably wrapped up in a feeling of like everyone has always abandoned me. Yeah, and I'm worthless, or the world is worthless, or something. Whereas when you come back from war, right, you're probably feeling disconnected as a result of feeling like I am different from other people. Yeah. I, no one can relate to me. Right. You know, that, that kind of stuff. I would bet that. Yeah. Right. Rather than like, I'm worthless and this will always be this way or I don't know that yeah. kind of stuff. Right. Okay. Yeah. Good. I hadn't thought about one, that. Maybe one based on experience and the other one based on self-concept. Right. Exactly. You uh, mean, meaning that borderline people have a self-concept yeah. of, of being, uh, disconnected, right? Whereas people with PTSD are experiencing disconnection. Yeah. So that's the difference between PTSD and so so far we've just sort of differentiated PTSD from complex and borderline. We we haven't differentiated complex or borderline. They seem to be pretty similar so far. Both have re-experiencing. Both have avoidance. Both have a sense of threat. Both have, both have affect regulation issues, anger, hurt feelings. Both have a negative self concept. And both have interpersonal problems. Now, here's where we get into the symptoms that are that are only for borderline, that differentiate complex PTSD from borderline. We have any guesses as to what we haven't mentioned yet that would be common to borderline? Self harm. Self harm. Right. So that's uh, that's exclusive to people with borderline. Some people with PTSD and complex PTSD exhibit it, but it's in the range of like 15%, so pretty low, as opposed to like 50% for, for people with borderline. Um, what's another symptom? Yeah, we haven't mentioned yet. Suicide. Suicide, right. Good. We, uh, are we lumping that with self-harm? Um, we might be. Uh, yeah, what else? Oh, God, I didn't know this was going to be a test. <laughs> <laughs> well, think about like relationships. You know, because we haven't. Oh, this uh, business about idealizing and devaluing. Right. Yeah. So unstable relationships, all good, all bad thinking. Uh, as you said, devaluating, devaluing and um, what's the other word? Idealizing. <laughs> idealizing, right. So people with complex PTSD don't do this uh, very often. A third of them do, but most of them don't. So, or don't endorse that symptom anyway on a, on a report. Right. All, and part of it's actually an interview, so someone's assessing them in this study. But anyway, so, but this is a hallmark. 84% of people with borderline personality disorder exhibit this pattern of idealizing, meaning that the idea goes, it, it helps to understand, it always, because again, when it was explained to me in grad school, it's like, well, you know, they they swing from you know, they idealize, they love you, and then they hate you. And, it, you know, they just go back and forth. And I was always like, oh, okay, there's something wrong with their brain, I guess, you know. But when you understand the reason, it all makes sense. It all comes together. When you are a human being, you need other human beings. You need love. You need attention. You need closeness. You need attachment. You need someone to know you. You need someone to talk to. You need to feel like someone is there for you. You need to feel like other people are loyal and, you know, all those kinds of things. Every, everyone needs that aside from a small set of people who don't, which is like psychopaths and, you know, 
and even they kind of need other people. But most human beings need other human beings in a tremendous way. When you have a when you have experienced time and time again from day one of your life of feeling rejected, abandoned, uh, as if no one cares enough to be those things for you, then you are extremely sensitive to being rejected because you've been rejected so many times. You've been hurt so many times. And rejected can take – abuse can make you feel rejected is some, something I just want to point out. It's like when a parent abuses you, it's a form of rejection. It's like I am – I'm going to abuse you and, and, I, and a message is like I don't love you enough to not abuse you or something. Um, and that's, you know, a form of rejection. Oh, shit, yeah. Yeah. And so, so the general form of rejection. And so as an adult, you naturally need other people, just like anyone else does. You have that. But you might even have a bigger need for attachment because you've never had that need met. You're, you've been, you know, wandering the desert looking for a glass of water your entire life. And every now and then you get like a little dropper of, of water that kind of sustains your life. And then, but then that, then there's no more water and you're like, you know, and so when you come upon an oasis and you see a little bit of water, you say, Oh my God. And you run and you're happy and you, you, you say, this is going to save my life. I'm finally going to, have all the water I need in my life. And you're running and you're screaming and you're like, Oasis, so this is going to be great. And then, uh, so that's the process of when someone with borderline personality, they meet someone who seems like that person might be able to give them their attachment needs. So the person with borderline clings to that person very strongly because They've been waiting their whole life naturally for someone to love them, to be a stable presence. And in the beginning of a relationship, there's no resentments yet. <laughs> there's no, there's no, um, you haven't gotten in a fight yet, you know? And so, the, and, and there's a lot of defense mechanisms that kick in for a person with borderline because they need this to work so badly that they ignore all the bad signs and, they might also idealize the person in their head because they're, uh, they need it to work. And so for people with borderline, sometimes, even though the relationship is very new and not necessarily likely to work out, they will talk about it like this is absolutely going to work out. For, you know, if you, you know, they go on a date with someone and the the next day they're talking with their friends or, Oh my God, this person is perfect. Every, you know, I, I think I want to marry this person, you know, everything, you know, and, and, and because they've been wandering the desert and they, they, they're not at the oasis yet, by the way, <laughs> they, they can see the oasis in, in the distance and, and, and they're, they can, you know, it's natural for someone wandering the wastelands to be like, I can see the oasis. I'm that's going to save my life. I'm finally going to get all the water I want and yay for me. I finally, you know, then 
inevitably something bad is going to happen. You know, it just happens. You know, there's a tension, there's a conflict, there's a, a subtle rejection, there's a, you know, reaction from the other person. And all of that trauma that you've been through gets triggered of you're worthless. No one's going to love you. No one will ever love you. This person is tricking you, just like all those other people tricked you. And all that comes out, and then you, and then you feel all of the hurt, and all the transference comes out. And then you turn on that person. You arrive at the oasis, and there isn't a single fucking drop. It was all, it was just a, you know, one of those murals that someone painted on this like shabby brick wall. And they did it on purpose to trick you. There's no water. You thought there was, but it was a trick, a nasty trick. And you're justifiably upset and hurt, and you're angry. And you hate this person for hurting you and for making you feel this way. So that's why people go back and forth between idealization and I hate you. This is the best description of this I've ever heard. Really? Yeah. Wow. Fabulous. That's high praise. Fabulous. Wow. Well, I just came up with the, 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 the desert bit. It's a great metaphor. Yeah, I kind of like it. I can see it in my head. I see it like um, Wiley Coyote when he runs into the wall. You know what I right. mean? Right. I know just what you mean. Yeah. Instead of a, instead of a tunnel, you know? Your but, listeners, I want them really to hold on to this as a metaphor. Yeah. This is really important. Yeah. 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 When do you understand that? Then it's like, oh, I get it. I see why when that client sits in my office and praises me for the first couple weeks or months <laughs> and is like, oh my God, you're really helping me. And oh my God, this is, you know, you're the best therapist. I've been to 20 other therapists and you are the best. Now, the client isn't crazy. They're not, they're not trying to suck you in. They're not pulling you into their borderline world, which is the way people will phrase it sometimes. Right. They are so desperate and uh, for something that everyone deserves that you're that oasis. Now, here's the trick, is the illusion of an illusion is an illusion. <laughs> so because you are a stable person for them, you are an oasis, there is a lot of water, but they don't realize that uh, that that's the truth. So, so when they feel like it's an illusion, then you have to demonstrate to them by managing your own fucking countertransference like a normal therapist. And this will actually say, no, it's not a brick wall. You know, it's still here. The, the oasis is here. You know, come, you know, I'm here. I'm a stable force. And you can get all the water you want. You got to pay me money every week, but you get all the water you want. And you can get that, your needs met so that, you know, you can leave this oasis and go find other, you know, oases in the storm. Mm. Um, the metaphor breaks down when I said a storm, but anyway, so, right. <laughs> so all good, all bad. Other things that differentiate borderline from PTSD and complex PTSD are frantic efforts to avoid abandonment, an unstable 
sense of self. So this is another important distinction between PTSD. So if you've, if you've been traumatized, even relationally, uh, then, and you have PTSD, you might still have a sense of self. The, it, to me, the distinguishing factor that's impossible to, to research, really, or at least to definitively or you know, convincingly research, is that we develop a sense of self when we're very young, you know, like ages three to six or something like that, you know what I mean? Maybe even younger. It's the, it's the terrible twos, it's the terrible fours, you know. No, you're giving a kid ice cream, and you know the kid wants ice cream, and the kid says no, you know, because the kid wants to have a sense of self, and one of the easiest ways to have a sense of self is to oppose, right? You see people do this all the time. When people lack a sense of self, they tend to oppose just for the sake of opposing because it, it feels good. And again, everyone needs a sense of self, so it, it's natural to oppose when you are seeking you know, development in that area. And if you are so abused and so never reflected or ever allowed to oppose or to explore yourself or to... Uh, and given the emotional space to develop yourself, then you'll you miss that critical period to develop a sense of self, and then you don't have it later on. Whereas if you're merely traumatized, which I put in quotes, but you're allowed to develop that sense of self during that age, then you won't likely develop borderline. Does this make sense? Yeah. So because when you lack, so I find that all the borderline traits. Uh, fit together in terms of that. If a so, for instance, say you have uh, a scenario where your mother is good enough. She, you know, she's she's not the best, but she's okay. And when you're three or four, she is, you know, she's there for you. And when you talk about what you like and what you don't like, or when you express yourself, or when you say no, she manages that normally and well enough you know, uh, and parents well enough. But the dad is an alcoholic and he is erratic in his emotions and has his own PTSD that he's suffering from or whatever. And he, when he's upset, he becomes physically abusive. And so you as a child, when you're three or four, you spill milk, you don't clean your room, you are too loud running around the house. And sometimes he's fine and other times he goes fucking ballistic. He gets off off the couch and just starts beating you because, you know, he told you once to stop running around the house. That's going to traumatize you. And it might even be complex PTSD because it involves your dad, whom is supposed to not abuse you and take care of you and protect you from abusers. So as an adult, you're going to have complex PTSD, but you're not going to have borderline personality disorder because you had that mother who was there to develop yourself over time and allowed you to develop that self. Now, if you didn't have that mother around and the father was neglectful and abusive, then you would be in a situation where no one was there to mirror your emotions, to, to encourage and cultivate your sense of self. I don't have the best words for cultivating a sense of self. <laughs> You're doing great. <laughs> but but uh, I hope you get my meaning. Do, do you get what I'm saying? 
everything you're saying makes complete sense. Okay. So this is how is this how you see this sort of thing? Yes. Yeah. Do you hear stories of uh like what's a specific kind of scenario for a three or four year old child that grows up and late and later enters your office and and suffers from borderline? Uh true story, changing the details. Um young man who I see now. Um as a kid, one day, sad and crying. And his father punched him in the nose and broke his nose. Wow. Yeah, for crying. Right. So. Yeah. And. And that's just one event among. Around, among many. Countless. Right. So it's terrifying. It's traumatizing and rejecting and not allowing you to express yourself. So. The lesson learned is do not express your emotions and maybe even don't even know what your emotions are <laughs> because if you know what they are, you might be tempted to express them, which can get you punched in the face and break your nose. So I will not even pay attention to who I am, what I am, what my impulses are, and so therefore, I don't even have a sense of self. I'm always reacting to the world. I'm always sensing what's happening outside of me and trying to stay out of trouble and trying to survive physically. Uh, and I'm not going to think about myself. An analogy to this that just coming to my head, who knows if this is going to pan out, is I went to Universal Studios and in L.A., and they have a zombie... Uh, walk through have you been to it no it's like a haunted house yeah but it's like a really good one you know <laughs> and i asked the guy at the front of the line the worker there about 50 million questions before i got on this thing because because you just walk through it it's not a ride you know yeah and there's these all these um there's this big sign that says if you have a heart condition if you have claustrophobia, if you have anxiety disorder, if you're pregnant, if you're, you know, don't go on this ride and, or don't do this, you know, thing. And I'm like, well, I'm kind of claustrophobic and I do suffer from anxiety sometimes. So, you know, so I was, how tight are the, what do you mean? What, what do you mean claustrophobic? Do they trap you in something? He's like, no, you just, there's just some tight corridors. And I was like, well, how tight, you know, cause, cause, there are certain kinds of tight quarters that are fine to me, but you put me in an MRI machine and I'm probably going to, I've never had that, you know, I've never been in one, but mm. I, I assume that would freak me out. Well, I went back and forth and I was like, I almost went on it and then I almost didn't. And then I went on it anyway. So I'm walking through the thing and I am, I am just now long story short, I get to, to get to the end. It was fine. It was, you know, there wasn't, there were people that jumped out at you. There are a number of diff different jump scares, but it was totally fine. I mean, it was, it's you, the thing I should have thought of. This is Universal Studios. This isn't some back alley carny running this thing. You know what I mean? This is like, if, if something bad had happened, they would have been sued already. Lawyers wrote those signs. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. So, but I didn't know that. So sure. on my first walk, I went through it again because, well, so this is part of my point. So I'm walking, I'm going through this thing. And if you would have asked, if you would have just like, you know, if someone would have walked up to me, if one of the zombies came out to me and asked me like what I wanted to do later in the day, 
I'd be like, I don't know, just get out of my face. You know what I mean? Like, I'd just be like, uh, there'd be no room in my brain for thinking about what I wanted to eat for dinner later or, you know, what my grand plans of life were. You know, I'd only be thinking about like, there's a zombie that's got, you know, at any moment, there's going to be a zombie that's going to jump out. Or I don't know what's going to happen. You know, that, that sign looked at what, what is going to happen to me? You know, something bad is going to happen. And they have all this creepy music and, it, you know, the set was really great. So I went through it a second time because I feel like I missed most of it because I was so hypervigilant about surviving the, the first, you know, I was so preoccupied with like, is this going to threaten me somehow that I couldn't pay attention. Well, if you have borderline and you've been traumatized in this way as a four-year-old, all you're doing, you're, you're a guy walking through this in a constant way. All you're doing is looking around going, when's the next shoe going to drop? What is going to happen to me? Because things periodically happen to you that you don't even have time to think about who you are or what you want or what makes you, you or what are your dreams in life or, and that's one of the things I always find when I ask people and people that I wouldn't characterize as borderline also have this basically any kind of mistreatment will often result in this is I'll ask clients. I'll be like, well, what do you want? And they'll say like, you know, they might have an answer at first, but when we get down to it, they just don't know. And we will spend, I've spent years on that one question. And by creating a therapeutic space that allows them to explore what they want without any pressure from me to, to come up with an answer, without any pressure from me for the right answer, without any suggestion from me about what I think they should do, just that space is what they needed you know, when they were three or four. And and good parents do that for kids. They'll turn to their four-year-old and say, what kind of ice cream do you want? And the four-year-old will, will, look, the four-year-old will look at the Baskin-Robbins selection. And, you know, they'll take a long time. I mean, if you, have you seen a four-year-old look at ice cream? You know, that, well, there's, you know, some kids will just pick, but, you know, eh, I don't know. And, you know, because it's a brand new world to them of making a choice. And good parents will let that happen. Now, eventually, it might be a look, you know, it's been five minutes. Choose something, please. But they gave him a little bit of time. So that's my analogy is if you asked me when I was on that universal ride what, I, what my favorite ice cream was, I would say, F off. I'm just trying to survive this thing. I can't. I, my brain, I might not have even been physically able to think about that because my brain was in such a state. You know what I mean? If we want to extend this metaphor, we would like to have those signs on the inside of the womb before birth. <laughs> yeah. On the way out of the vagina. <laughs> on the way out. There's this, like, uh, this ride might cause panic. <laughs> there might be some abandonment issues. <laughs> if, you, if you're sensitive to uh, child abuse, you might not want to go on this ride. <laughs> God, that's morbid. <laughs> okay. Other symptoms that are exclusive to borderline are impulsivity, which I find interesting. Right. That was kind of bothers me that, that symptom identification of borderline, you know, I was like, well, you know, borderline people are impulsive. And I'm always like, well, I don't know. Cause my conception of borderline is 
not an, an ADHD thing, you know? Right. That, so, and I, and in my experience, people with borderline aren't like impulsive in the ADHD way. No. Um, how are they impulsive in your experience? Relationally. Right. And they're, because they're so hurt so often or so, you know, all good, all bad kind of situations based on, you know, normal or understandable reasons. They do things that I think clinicians label as impulsive. That is key. Right. So it's always bothered me when they say, well, you know, borderline people are impulsive. I'm like, well, that, that's not my experience. I don't find them to be impulsive. <laughs> so, you know, that book, that DSM, in some ways says more about the people diagnosing than the people diagnosed. Yeah, totally. And, you know, the DSM is designed for behavioral observation, not for intra-psychic, uh, you know, comment. Right. It used to be. But, which I understand because they're trying to make it a science. Yeah. You know, it's, it's the a, psychiatry. You it's know. a tug of, it's a balance. Yeah. Yeah. We just need to know that when we're reading it. You know what I mean? That it's, they're trying to make it an observable science, not a, uh, interpretation of what's happening in someone's psyche. Right. You know what I mean? Um, but I'm of the belief that there's no way you can talk about any of these things without having a model for what is happening in the psyche, you know, cause then it all makes sense. You know, it's sort of like we've never directly observed the inside of the sun. You know, we have, we, we have no idea what's actually happening on the end. No one knows. No one's been there. There's no pictures. But we surmise based on a lot of excellent circumstantial evidence. Now, I'm not saying that's the same as the psyche because it's a, it's a squishy, you know, wet mess of pudding in our head <laughs> that somehow creates consciousness. I mean, it's literally pudding. You know what I mean? That doesn't have the consistency of like kind of like like rice pudding or something. The brain? Yeah. Yeah, it tastes like chicken, though. You've had brain? <laughs> no. Oh. <laughs> Some people eat brain. Yeah. Well, we've probably all had brain in our hot dogs and bologna, right? <laughs> There's got to be brain in that thing. Um, I always knew bologna and hot dogs made me smarter. No. <laughs> uh, other symptoms. So, so just going through the different symptoms that we've already said. Frantic efforts to avoid abandonment. All good, all bad, thinking about relationships. Unstable sense of self, impulsivity, which we put an asterisk next to, self-injury, self-harm, temper, which is interesting. So a temper, having a temper is definitely a borderline thing. Um, I see it much more in men than in women, but definitely in, in women. And paranoia is another hallmark of borderline that is is only present in about a third of complex PTSD and in 17% of PTSD people. And this paranoia should also be distinguished between from Del delusional, yeah. right? It's paranoia in the broader sense that you think things, you think people are thinking bad thoughts about you or they're going to reject you when there's no indication and, uh, you know, that kind of stuff that we talked about already. Right. Um, mood changes are uh, also common to borderline 
not so much for PTSD and complex PTSD. But here's the interesting, feeling empty. So that's another kind of lack of sense of self. So that feeling of emptiness that you will hear from people with borderline. Only 22% of people with PTSD have that, but nearly all complex PTSD and borderline people have that. I find that to be very interesting. Mm. It's kind of, it doesn't make any sense to me based on this research that they come up with. Because why would complex PTSD people have a profound sense of emptiness, but a sense of self? Because to me, those are the same thing, right? Feeling empty and having... A, and not having a self. To me, I've always considered those to be two uh, words for the same thing. Are they different? Uh, well, I don't know. I think we should define the term. And most people define themselves relationally, which is why this is so confusing. Yeah. Right. Who am I? I'm a son. I'm a friend. I'm a husband. Yeah. Right. That's what I am. Yeah. You know, so, so how could I have a sense of self as defined by my connections to the important people in my life and the less important people as well, and also feel empty at the same time. That's interesting. Yeah, I could see that. I can see it too. Right. So feeling empty, uh, you know, it's even more common, slightly more common for people with complex PTSD than it is for people with borderline, which I find to be very interesting. So again, yeah. Uh, just to go over the symptoms, um, for for all three flashbacks, nightmares, uh, avoidance, uh, sense of threat, uh, those are common to all. Then, for just complex and borderline, we have anger, hurt, worthlessness, guilt, not feeling close, and feeling disconnected. And then the things that are basically exclusive to borderline is frantic efforts efforts to avoid abandonment. Uh, all good, all bad relationship, uh, you know, with other people, unstable sense of self, impulsivity, self-harm, temper, paranoia, and mood changes. And then emptiness is both complex and, and borderline. So according to this study by Cloitra in the journal, <laughs> European Journal of Psychotraumatology, they, in, in terms of their definition of complex PTSD, these are three distinct categories with a lot of overlap, if that makes any sense. Now, the question that patron Natasha is asking, her core question that we're finally getting to, is, well, what's the difference and how do we treat? You know, what's, you know what, what does this mean in terms of treatment? Right. What do you think? Um, uh, treating complex PTSD and borderline personality disorder are going to be longer. They're probably going to be slower than simple PTSD and uh, have greater elements of the importance of the relationship and ability to reflect relationship than perhaps simple PTSD. That would be my guess. Okay. Right. So with complex PTSD and borderline, there are... Go so when it comes to just simple PTSD, I can and have treated people in five sessions. Yeah. Ten sessions. Yep. You know, because they come into therapy, they have a trauma that is very bothersome. Right. And they have a lot of PTSD symptoms. But because they were not abused as children to the extent that developed complex or borderline, they trust me. They, they can 
work with me and they and they're not being constantly triggered and re-traumatized by all these other people in their life because they have a even when the trauma actually involves interpersonal stuff. So I, I've had people have been traumatized by their spouse, like the moment you found out that your spouse cheated on you mm-hmm. or something. That's that could be a traumatic oh, moment. Yeah. It's a difficult moment for everyone, uh, depending on whether or not you like your spouse. <laughs> but it's traumatic for some people in that it creates a physiological, neurological response that produces the opportunity to develop PTSD later, which is specific. You know, uh, just just because a situation was difficult doesn't mean it produces PTSD. Right. And I find this sort of, uh, and I talk about this all the time, is I see a lot of clinicians out there just saying, well, they were traumatized, they have PTSD, without actually looking to see if they have PTSD symptoms. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I, I know people that'll be like, well, she was sexually abused. You know, I have a, I have a 10-year-old who was right. sexually abused for five years by her dad. Right. She has PTSD. Right. It's like, have you, have well, you. tell me the symptoms. Sure. They're like, oh, well, she was, I don't know. And I'm like, well, how do you know? she? Yeah. PTSD is a very specific reaction to a difficult situation. Right. And, and it's a physiological reality that will show up in one's behavior that can be endorsed, you know? So anyway, so the... Uh, uh, you can have a situation in which, you know, you come across the texts on your partner's phone, mm-hmm. or you see them walking around, or you uh, they leave their computer on, and you see some emails, and you start reading them. That moment will be difficult, but for some people, it will be it'll create this physiological response of essentially terror. It's a it's a weird thing to be terrorized by something like that, but. We're so relationally needy and oriented that to be tricked in that way and to suddenly realize you've been tricked for so long can actually produce a sense of terror as if you were going down in an airplane or someone was holding a gun to your head. It's the same physiological response. It's probably based on the evolution in terms of like staying with the tribe and making sure you're always accepted and because if you're not, you're on your own and you're probably likely to be eaten by a tiger. So we probably evolved this you know, mechanism to uh, motivate us to be very scared of being rejected. And so when we have that uh, experience, it can produce PTSD. So it can be relationally uh, happen, but it's, an, it's a discrete moment for the most part. And the treatment of it is very simple. So five to 10 sessions, maybe a little more. With complex PTSD, what you're saying and borderline is... It can, it's going to take a lot longer because not only is it more complex and more detailed because it's not just this one moment or a set of moments. It's basically their entire life. But it's also deeper. It's more infused in their personality. And it they're being constantly re-triggered by everyone around them on a constant basis. And they'll be re-triggered by you. And the healing element has to do with the therapist relationship itself. For the simple PTSD treatment, the relationship is important as a foundation to propel the exposure treatment. But the but it's not it's not the central feature of the treatment itself, as in complex PTSD and borderline personality disorder. It has to be a good enough relationship. It doesn't have to be a close relationship. Right. Well, we could define close. Um, 
you know, right. What do you mean? What, what's the difference for you? Um, where part of the treatment is focused on the experience of therapist. Part of the experience. Tell me more. So, so if I have simple PTSD, say a car accident. Oh, I thought you were differentiating between the other two. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No, well, if I had simple PTSD, I need a decent therapist, one who's going to be compassionate, right. uh, knowledgeable, um, aware of me enough to pace the treatment properly. Right. But the focus... And of I the, need to trust them on a basic level yeah. that they have my interest in, in heart. In heart. Yeah. And if my experience in life is that people are basically decent, trustworthy, um, you know, uh, paying attention properly, et cetera, then I bring that mindset to my counseling right. and my counselor. Now, presuming my counselor is actually any good, yeah. then the focus of the treatment doesn't have to include much of the relationship itself. In fact, if it's a car accident, you just need a good enough, a decent enough human. Right. You don't need... Um, I lost my train. Well, the relationship... It, like, I've had people come to me for simple PTSD who I suspect barely even noticed me. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Right. Like, it's more like right. they, you know, they just basically trust people. Right. And they trusted me enough. Right. And it was, I could have been anybody, really. Yeah. Right. As long as I technically did my job. Right. You know, um, not that they were mean or no, not uncaring, but, you know, they came there for a job to get, you know, treatment for simple PTSD, and they got it, you know. You don't generally hang out with your surgeon after right. your appendectomy. Exactly. Uh, if you have a general trust, you're like, okay, you know, great. I don't need to, you know. If, when I have my flu shot, I go to the Walgreens. Right. And, you know, there's, there's, I need a little bit of trust. Like, <laughs> is this person, you know. But I generally walk in there, and, you know, there's some, I have a little, if, if, if the person who did that was a complete jerk, I would probably be like, nah, I don't feel very good about this. But, you know, a basic level of bedside manner. Yeah. And everything goes well. Right. Whereas if, if with complex PTSD, and particularly with borderline, the, the dependence on the relationship being strong is much greater, mm -hmm. if not, in you know, infinitely <laughs> greater, and actually a focus of the treatment. Right, you yeah. will not likely be forgotten by your client that you treated many years ago. Right, ever. Right, as I haven't forgot her. Um, yeah, I like that you said that. Oh yeah, that's absolutely essential. Yeah, you I, have. I, to, I, you I have remember all of the all the people that uh, I. Of course, I I can't verify this right now, but. But uh, the you know people with borderline or you know histrionic or um, or with uh, narcissistic, they are so uh, they they create so much countertransference. One and two, I feel so good about treating them because. It's so gratifying, you know. Treating someone someone's simple PTSD is wonderful, absolutely. You know? I, and I feel very good about myself, and I feel you know there's a lot of gratification in that. But treating someone for ten years and having them actually progress in that time from someone who was highly symptomatic with borderline to someone who was only moderately or minimally, you know, symptomatic with borderline is. And just every moment, you know, minute to minute of me just struggling internally and, and 
you know, giving compassion and having that, you know, go various different ways, sometimes received well and sometimes not. And like, you know, there's just so many different, uh, it's such a journey yeah. that uh, it's hard to forget those times, you know? No. Part of that journey, if you are not impacted by your client, you're not doing a good enough job. Mm. So that person's going to be in your heart. And right. they have to be. You actually do have to care. They have to matter. They can't just be this, my four o'clock client on a Thursday. Right. Right. Otherwise, the treatment's going to go nowhere. So to me, it would be impossible to right. forget. Right. Yeah. Right. So to me, the differences in treatment, that in the literature, they actually differentiate between complex PTSD and borderline treatment. Right. But when I read it, it sounds kind of like they're trying to come up with stuff, in, right. in, in my opinion. Uh, the, the thing I'll say is, is that um, your pro- – so to patron Natasha, the treatment is basically going to be the same. But to say it's the same is not to say that everyone with these diag- diagnoses are the same. So basically, if you have someone with complex PTSD – which isn't in the DSM, by the way, so you know, take that with a grain of salt, um, or borderline, you have to tailor the treatment to that individual anyway. So it doesn't really matter to me how you, as a clinician, conceptualize it, whether it's borderline or, or not. It might be helpful to understand these symptoms that are more attributable to borderline, you know, like the abandonment kind of... It sounds like complex PTSD in terms of the literature. They're not... Within the contract of complex PTSD is not the abandonment, lack of sense of self, you know, that the idealization, devaluing relationships. That's that's not complex PTSD. So, uh, so you know, if someone doesn't have that, if they don't have that devaluing idealization, then that's going to be very different in terms of your your relationship with the client and the kinds of goals that you have and the kinds of conceptualizations you have of their relationships and the, and the prognosis, frankly. Yeah. But, um, so, but you could have someone with borderline that I would conceptualize as borderline that also didn't have that or just didn't have it as much or something. Right. So to me, it doesn't really matter. There's no biomarker of this. Yeah. It's just how, and, and again, complex PTSD isn't an official construct at this point. So, Someone could say legitimately, well, my, my definition of complex PTSD is borderline. You know, so right. it doesn't matter is the point. The point is, is that you as a clinician need to understand trauma. You need to understand childhood attachment uh, and how that can play out in all the various ways. You need to understand how trauma can play out in all those various ways. You need to understand how family systems and how different and bad matches can result in a shall we say, a toxic recursive cycle that can result in something down the line. You need to understand all this stuff, and you need to understand how that affects someone's psyche later on, and you need to understand how to heal that psyche in later in life to help them with their goals. Whether or not you, you say that's complex PTSD or borderline, it doesn't really matter. So that's what I'll say to that. You know, one of the things I've noticed is that uh, many people come to me saying that their therapist said they have features of borderline personality disorder. Right. This happens a lot. Really? And, uh, yeah, I'd say not quite half of the people in my class. Um, Your uh, dialectical behavioral 
dialectical behavior therapy. therapy. You're talking about Marshall Linehan, right? Yeah, Linehan stuff. You have a DBT, you've been running a DBT group it's for a long time. Almost 20 years. Yeah. It's amazing to think in, anyways. That's why you're an expert in this area. Um, uh, so I'd say, you know, not quite half people show up at my class um, said to me, my therapist says, I have features of this, not the full-blown thing. They very well may be talking about complex PTSD. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Or the therapist doesn't want to yeah, right. be, uh, you know, because some people don't yeah. take that well. You right. know? Uh, some people do. Yeah. I, I have people write me all the time uh, from this podcast and say, you know, I have borderline. Yeah. And thank you for talking about this or that, or I have right. a question or something. And But in my experience clinically, I have in, at least intuited that that kind of discussion would not go very well. Or I've, I haven't found a need for that risk. <laughs> right. There's in, there isn't a need because what you're going to do is still what you're going to do. Right. And, and they understand how I see them, right. which is, you know, all the things that I've said, right. I will say to a client and they'll be like, oh, that makes sense to me. And then right. I'll say, okay, well, the cure is, is that you and I right. have to figure out how to help you internalize this relationship as the way I see it, which is stable, caring, compassionate, real, uh, valuing of you, uh, kind of almost one di- one directional in terms of like I'm here for you, yeah. you're not here for me, right? You know, and so we're you know, and they'll be like, okay, yeah, that sounds good to me. You know, let's let's work on that, right? Um, well, you're, we're talking about borderline. You are. You're talking about it. You just don't have to hang a moniker, right? Because. They go on the internet. <laughs> oh, type, no. Yeah. Or even talk to another clinician. Oh, clinicians are the worst. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, things could go badly. Right. Whereas if they went on the internet and said, because I've been relationally traumatized, right. I am now using relational therapy to help heal my, you know, relational wounds. Right. Uh, you know, you, you type that into Google and you're probably gonna, not going to get anything that's right. going to hurt their feelings. No. You, know, you type in borderline yeah. and you're going to get a lot of stuff uh. that's going to hurt people's feelings. Because people, with, again, because people with borderline are very sensitive to rejection naturally, when you label them as something, um, they can take that as, as a rejection. Right. Like, oh, your feelings are invalid. They're not real. They're just because of this disorder you have. Right. You know, you're, you're pathological. Uh, and easily discountable. You know, you're crazy, essentially. For, you know, all of your feelings are questionable. That's a very rejecting, discounting communication to have to somebody. Right. Which is the way that you could walk away with, uh, upon reading a short description of Borderline on, you know, WebMD or whatever. Yeah. Any final words on this topic here? Uh, did you learn anything? Yeah, quite a bit. I learned quite a bit from this study, too. Um, uh, Yeah, I think the thing uh, to answer your patron's question is, what is your client bringing? That's what you're going to treat. It doesn't matter what you call it. You know, ultimately, it doesn't matter. Right. For for some people, the... I could imagine maybe one distinguishing thing that we... That might distinguish these two that... Well, I guess... Well, the weird thing is, is that that I wouldn't have expected is that this study showed that people who, you know, can meet the criteria for borderline 
basically most of them have all the symptoms of PTSD, right. which, is, which I wouldn't have predicted. Uh, they're often comorbid, they call them. Right. But to say that like a majority of people with borderline have the avoidance and the you know, hypervigilance and all that kind of stuff is, is interesting because that's not my experience. I, they present differently. Right. But again, I think the way to see it is that their PTSD symptoms show up in a borderline way, I guess, maybe the way is to think of it. But anyway, the point is, is that one distinguishing factor between different clients that you might conceptualize as difference between complex PTSD and borderline is the kind of classic trauma reaction versus a more general borderline reaction to, to a trigger, so to speak. So for instance, you were abused by your parents physically growing up, but you don't have borderline. You don't have the idealization, that kind of stuff. And whenever someone gets angry or the hint of anger, you get triggered and you start having trust issues and you start uh, engaging in kind of weird games with, with that person to try to manage their anger or something. But you don't idealize and you don't devalue. You have a sense of self, but your relational trauma it translates into a relational experience later on in life that is quite pervasive in someone's life and quite affecting and confusing to the person, but it has, an, it has a flavor of PTSD to it, if that makes any sense. Whereas someone with borderline, it's, it's so all-encompassing in their personality. You know, Because you were neglected as a child, you weren't able to develop a personality uh, properly. You know, and so that in and of itself is its own issue, let alone being abandoned and abused, right. and, you know. And so to me, when I encounter that difference, right, uh, that's how I would characterize it, I guess, especially after reading and looking at this research. I, I think the next time I encounter someone in this category, this broad category, I'm going to try to figure out, right, okay. Uh, for my sense of conceptualization, are we talking about someone that was not allowed to develop a personality, uh, meaning that they were so neglected that they weren't allowed to develop a sense of self that, you know, a distinguishing factor between complex PTSD and borderline might be you ask the person with complex PTSD, how do you feel about yourself? And they would be like, well, you know, I know I'm a good person and, you know, and well, who are you? Well, you know, I'm, you know, I'm creative and, you know, there's good qualities to me. You ask someone with borderline these questions and, you know, not all the time, but but a good amount of time, they're going to look at you like, or they're going to try to act like they have to come up with some answers. But when they really get down to it and they're being honest, they'll be like, I don't even know how to answer that question. Right. You know, in fact, that question makes me afraid. Right. When you ask me what's good about me, I actually get a little terror. Like I, cause I look inside myself and it's, it's, it's empty. You know, it's like, I, I see I see an abyss of terribleness, you know, just this hole. And, and I've seen that happen. I've, I've actually seen people decompensate as a result of asking them some kind of personal question that someone with comp, the, the way we're conceptually complex PTSD, they right. could answer that question yeah. without that sort of distress. Is that your experience, Bob? That when you ask people... Um, you know, have you ever had someone decompensate, meaning that they 
you know, they become very quickly distressed as a result of being asked a question like that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I have. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, um, it's interesting. The first number of times it happened to me, I was like, well, what am I not seeing here? You know? <laughs> right. But then after a while, I was like, oh, I get it. It's, it's because, you know, it took me a long, probably 15 years to even understand what that was, that emptiness feeling, you know, just that, that, um, that thing that a lot of people with borderline were describing to me, but I just never really got, you know, and then now I feel like I understand it because I've just seen so many, because I, I don't have it, you know, for the most part, <laughs> but enough people have explained it to me where I'm just like, oh man, that would be terrifying. Yeah. You know, you look into yourself and nothing is there. That would be freaking terrifying, <laughs> you know? Falling into an abyss is terrifying enough as it is, as it is. But if the abyss is in you, yeah. you are the abyss. It's like, ah, you know. Uh, so, yeah. Well, uh, any, any final, final words? Yeah. No. All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. I, I would say this was an official, an official deep dive. I thought we were only going to talk for about a half an hour. But... It's been uh, almost two hours now. Jeez. Yeah. Good. There's just so much to talk about. It's good. It's a good question. And it's been mostly me talking. Yeah. You're good at it. <laughs> hey, you deserve it too. Well, <laughs> I, I have a very robust sense of self is the issue. Uh, perhaps too robust for some people's tastes, which um, produces just a lot of words coming out of my pie hole into this microphone. Uh, well, th- the final words coming out of my pie hole into this microphone is that does it for this episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there. And please take care of yourself. Why should people take care of themselves, Bob? Because like you, they deserve it. 